This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. So um, I got a new hard drive for my desktop, and it took far, far, far too many trips to the store <laughs> to install this thing. You can install hard drives and <laughs> <in> things? <laughs> What's a, what's, a, what's a desktop? <laughs> so what, there are these computers that are made by not Apple where when you find that you need more hard drive space, you can just put in a new hard drive and not have to buy an entirely new computer. Those are for, ga- for games, right? Yes, <laughs> That's exactly. basically it, yeah. <laughs> So as part of our software development process here, we often do retrospective meetings like every week or every two weeks with the client. And we talk about what went well, what didn't go well, what should we change, what are our concerns, that kind of thing. And so I always notice a pattern in these. And and it's really, well, I don't always notice the pattern. I think there is a frequently occurring pattern that's really easy to miss in these things. And it comes to mind because just like software process stuff has been front of mind for me recently. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a tendency to say among developers who enjoy things like retrospectives as a way to like, hey, for the most part, things are going great here, but there's these problems. Let's focus on these problems and find a way to fix them and find a way to fix this other thing. And there's a tendency for every concern or problem that gets raised in a retrospective to try and come up with a solution. So, and that solution is often like, oh, we need another meeting to discuss these types of things on tickets, or it's, uh, we need another check before we can deploy to production or something like that. And in some cases, those are actually valid things to act, to do. But in other cases, I think it's worth, and I'm bringing this up now because the engineering manager or VP of engineering that was in the retrospective I was in today did this. And I thought it was really effective was just like, let's restate the problem from like top to bottom of what you've experienced. And it was basically like in this particular case, some work was somewhat ambiguous and some more upfront design and upfront planning could have prevented some, I don't know, I guess it was termed as wasted work from a couple developers. And, uh, you know, when you say something like wasted work, nobody wants to waste any work. So he just kind of restated the problem as like people got to take two tickets that they thought were like tangentially related, but ended up being more like materially related and could have had some like nice unifying design behind them if they had noticed it earlier. Right. But they started doing the work and then both of them got far enough and looked at what the other person was doing and realized that like, oh, there's a lot of commonality here. We should design a different solution. And they go back to the drawing board. So they go back to the drawing board, come up with a better solution, implement the better the base for both of these things, and then implement both of these features over time, right? And mm-hmm. everybody was kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> and he was like, what was the problem? Like, yes, there was some wasted work there, but like we've talked about on the show before, sometimes wasted work isn't actually waste. It's just like figuring out something that doesn't work, and that's fine. Right. It's one less thing. But in this case, I don't think it was figuring out something that doesn't work. It was just like allowed the people involved to come to the realization that there was a missing piece here that they both had in common and they needed to get that first and i think that's like there was some discussion in the meeting about like well how do we prevent people from just like picking up a card and running with it when they don't necessarily know that it like there's some design in common with this other thing and my response was basically like you you don't like right (laughs) they pick it up and run with it and if they can implement it and it gets through code review then it's fine right 
And then when the second thing comes in, when the when somebody goes to do the second change and they're like, oh, wait, there's a lot of duplication here, then you address it then. And like sometimes you can identify beforehand when you're looking at tickets and that you're putting into a sprint or prioritizing in your Kanban board or whatever you're going to do. You can look at them and be like, oh, I see a commonality here. We should create a card specifically for like, let's do this underlying work that both of these things will benefit from. Or like, let's have the two people are going to work on this, come to a meeting and agree how they're both going to address this so that we don't do a lot of duplication or a lot of wasted effort. I think you can get away with doing a lot of that just in general, too. Like I was, I was going to say, it seems like one thing that might prevent it to a certain extent is smaller and earlier commits. Right. Yep. That helps. Uh, depending on the context, definitely can help. But like there's just certain... There's just a, an amount of waste that's going to happen, right? And like, there's a concept in retail called shrinkage, which is like, you are going to lose merchandise, right? Like, people either right. like... People are going to steal it. People are going to steal it, or you're not going to get delivered what you counted on the way in, or whatever, you know? Like, your inventory is mm-hmm. just going to be off. And generally, off in a way that's bad for you. And I think in software development, there is just a certain amount of like, there's going to be spinning your wheels, wasted effort, like this didn't work. Or like, actually, now that I know this new thing, I would have done this first thing totally differently. And some amount of that is just unavoidable. And I think it's always kind of, it's good to stop for a second and be like, could this have been avoided? The answer is almost always yes, it could have been Mm -hmm. avoided. But then the second question, which I think is more important to ask is like, should we avoid it at the cost of whatever this thing that's going to avoid avoid the problem is, right? And recognizing right. that there's a cost. Because like one of the suggestions for fixing this was like having more of a like a technical design meeting or something like that, which is appropriate for some tickets. But I don't think that should be a, a, a matter of process. I think it should just be like a thing that occurs naturally when you realize the need for it rather than adding to process. It's something I see in a lot of teams where you know, we come onto an established team. And we're like, why are you doing this one thing that seems really onerous on your process? And it's like, oh, because uh, one time we deployed and this thing happened, or one time we had a problem with this and, and this meeting or this process is meant to stop that. It's like, well, how much time did that thing cost you originally? <laughs> and right. now every day or every week you're doing this other thing to avoid that one problem. And it's, it's kind of like the, uh, now that I'm talking about it, it's like why everybody has to take their shoes off to get on an airplane now, right? Like, right. Like, cause one guy, one time somebody put explosives in their shoes. And so now we all have to take our shoes off. I was going to say, it's like using spring. <laughs> sure. I had an interesting conversation with, uh, so spring being the rails application preloader, not spring, the Java framework. Right. Maybe both. Who knows? I mean, um, you, you, you can definitely make this argument for the Java framework. <laughs> Um, but I had an argument with Chris cause like he uses spring and I've been doing some pair programming with him on Friday and I was like, D- but don't you find that one time a week or whatever, where you do something and you're like, Oh, spring, that's what like you go debugging and you're like, why isn't this working? This doesn't make any sense. And like you think to run spring stop and then everything works again. Right. Like, don't you find that to be more of a cost than all the little bits of time you're adding up you're, you're saving. Right. And his point was like, yes, probably it's either equal or I'm spending more time due to that one time I'm having a problem, but all the other times that it just works offset that, right? Because like when it just works, TDD is better because he can run the tests a lot faster and gets feedback faster. Sure. And the feeling of it when it's just working makes up for the fact that overall it's time neutral or maybe even a slight time loss. I also find that I always feel very drained after after we're going into some sort of debugging session that leads down a major rabbit hole, which if if the problem ends up being spring, it always universally does. I have disable spring equals one set in my environment. 
Yep, me too. And still, when I get errors, I'm like, uh, spring stop? <laughs> right, and that, just so you can get the confirmation that spring is not running. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, this isn't this isn't spring, right? There's not some, like, because I've been on projects before where they had disable spring equals zero set in an end file. So, like, even though my environment was setting disable spring <laughs> equal one, oh. the environment variable, which I don't know how that actually interacted because at startup time it would be zero. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. I just recognized the thing that was happening in the retrospective I had today and was like, yes, I would love to see more of this happen in retrospectives where it's like, I acknowledge that that situation was likely frustrating for you and that there was some wasted work that happened here, but that doesn't mean we should do something about it. Let's, let's put a pin in that and let's come back to it in a month and see if like, are we continuing to have this specific problem? Or was this specific problem so bad that we need to introduce some process overhead at all times? Anyway, keep that in mind in your retrospectives and in your process planning, things like that. I've had a lot of less than useful retrospectives in the past. Not not that I'm trying to say like it's a bad part of the process or anything, but I've had too many projects where just they didn't end up being useful. Where like every retrospective is just, yeah, everything went well. Or, you know, the things that didn't go well are like the momentum of the project is too slow, but the reason behind that is because of unrealistic expectations on the part of the client and they end up not being able to adjust those. Or like, you know, there have been cases where it was like the thing that went poorly was just a person on the project doing some horrible horrible things and they had been removed from the project or even from the company. <laughs> you know, not every retrospective is like that, but I've had far too many projects where like every retrospective is just, there's nothing to talk about. Yeah, and I think a lot of times when I go on to other teams and they already have retrospectives in progress, right? It's already a thing, and so I'm joining their retrospective, and I'm not saying, like, here, I'm not teaching people how to run a retrospective or anything like that. I go on to the team, and I'm kind of surprised at, A, the way it's run often, and then, B, how positive everybody is all the time, right? Uh, where right. everything went really well, and you're like... I everything didn't go really well or like the things that didn't go really well were out of the team's control somehow right like there was a third party integration that's been really hard to do because reliability issues with that uh, service or something like that which sure. is for the most part out of your control although you can look back and be like well how, why did we decide to integrate here or like, you know whatever. yeah i mean you can definitely you know look at redundancy or maybe even just switching providers if that's the problem right but i think that people often get like i'm not generally afraid to be like uh, this process that is entrenched here, you know, the way work gets assigned or something like that is really causing me pain or like what, or, you know, things like that. And I'm, I'm not afraid to try and confront those things. And I think if you've been in a retrospective where it's very much like, it's almost like a cheerleading session, if you've been in those for too often, I think it can be kind of like, whoa, that person's really negative. Yeah. Right? I always have to like, in those situations, I always try and <laughs> balance out what I'm going to say like maybe even for the first week I just I'm just like also relentlessly positive right to try and be like <laughs> okay let's let's uh I'll try and get on here we all know you are really negative so <laughs> right and the other the other way I've seen retrospectives go poorly is if like if you are on a team that's kind of just gets into a groove with retrospectives they can become like repetitive and monotonous and like it's just like a thing you have to, then you're like oh it's this, it's this process we do and you're not really looking at like what you get out of it sometimes just shaking up the way you do it right and be like well we always do it this way it's like well let's try and do it this other way let's change the questions we ask or things like that so have everybody wear a different hat <laughs> yeah one thing i really don't like about retrospectives is when it's like everybody in a room and then everybody's like so okay who's got something right like right what went well 
and you're just waiting, right? One of the things I really appreciated about the way we do it at ThoughtBot is the prescriptive way that we do it. We don't always do it this way, but is uh, we start with how did last week go? What are you looking forward to this week? Or like what's on your plate for this, like that kind of thing. And it's sometimes some interesting stuff comes out of there, but we just go around the whole room and everybody in the room answers that question. Right. And it's more just, it's not, it's not even intended necessarily to get valuable information out into the room. It's more intended to establish expectation and a comfort level in everybody's going to participate and talk. Yeah. And then when we get to the point of like, what are you concerned about? Which is, is where like the meat of retrospective, I think, comes from. And we do the same thing where like we go around the entire room and we identify the concerns without addressing them, right? And you can you can say like, I echo Sean's concern about whatever, right? Right. And then you table the discussion for later. And the person running the retrospective looks at all the concerns, tries to rank them by the like number of people that voice this concern or the severity of the concern. And then we say like, okay, do we have ideas for mitigating this concern? And then you have that conversation once everything's been aired. So you don't end up having like a bunch of people like, oh, was it my, was it my turn to go? Or are we still talking about, have we resolved this issue yet? And because the oftentimes you don't end up resolving the issue in retrospective. It's more like we've identified this issue. We have a few leads on how to, how to pursue it. And like, Sean's going to look into redundancy in this service or whatever and get back to us next week. And I really like that format. Granted, having just said, sometimes you need to shake things up, but like the everybody get in a room and uh, who's got something just, uh, I think leads to a lot of people looking around, like at the end of a conference talk, when you say like, any questions and you're like, Oh, okay, no questions. Let's go. Like, (laughs) it's like everybody's kind of looking around like, well, maybe I have a question. Do I have a question? Do I want to bother everybody else with this question or should like, is this question really broadly applicable or is it just a thing for me? That kind of situation. So, I mean, in my experience, that never happens. You get the person who's immediately like, I want to tell you about why everything you said was wrong. (laughs) But sometimes, yes. Anyway. That's my thing about retrospectives and process for the week. <laughs> this has been yeah. process corner. I mean, I think one thing you can do if you are struggling to find things to say in a retrospective is at nothing else, just go through your user stories and make sure that everybody has a, a couple of assignments for the week. Yeah. And make sure they're prioritized. Right. And a lot of people, <laughs> that's the other thing is like, I actually just had a conversation with a friend of mine about like, he's following like agile software development scrum methodologies in his job and somebody right. somebody was like we should do kanban and so he talked to me and he was like i know you guys do a lot of different stuff like which one of these do you recommend and i was like oh, whatever works for your team like <laughs> i was like i don't even know what's what and what's one of them and what's the other like i don't know where the lines are oftentimes like to me scrum means like we're gonna have a sprint planning meeting and blah 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 where kanban means like we're just gonna have a, a prioritized list of backlog that gets you know we move things along as we can and i said like i think loosely that's what it is but i think where people get in trouble is like so like your advice of like let's if nothing else at at retrospective let's make sure everybody knows like what they a couple things they should be working on this week they can say like what they what they accomplished last week that kind of thing a lot of people would say like oh you should like we carve up the work in sprint planning right and uh just like hewing too much to these like rigid like oh this meeting's for that and then we have demo and then we have uh planning and we have backlog grooming and those are all those all have to be separate things and like maybe for your organization making those things be separate things makes 100 percent sense or maybe like the structure of that process is good training wheels for your team but at some point you just kind of that my advice was basically like just find what works for your team like if the scrum thing is working and you just have one person who really wants to try kanban then just be like no the scrum thing's working we're gonna stick with it 
But like, if you want to give it a shot, be like, okay, yeah, let's try it. It's not expensive to switch. Like, you just get reschedule some meetings and rethink about how you want to like divide up work and prioritize things, and that's it. So yeah, yeah, don't be too tied to any particular process in general. I hate though the way some teams use the term sprint. Like, if sprint planning meeting is a regular occurrence, that implies that you are always in a sprint, which means that your team is always sprinting. I've never really liked that's the not, word that's sprint. Not, that's not how it works. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. <laughs> I've never really liked the word sprint. Is there like, is the, like if you go to Scrum School or whatever, <laughs> will they teach you that there's like a sprint and then there's a period between sprints, or is there just? It, are, is I'm pretty sure. No, sprinting? you're just always in a sprint. You you right. you have a two week sprint and then you have another two week sprint and then you have another two week sprint. I think the, some companies maybe put a week in between for like refactoring. That seems interesting. I don't know. Like the word sprint seems poorly chosen in that case. Yeah. Like I like it in the context of the product design sprint in that it is the one thing that is significantly more intense than the rest of the project. Right. I mean, if I'm being honest, my preferred way is like just put some things in a backlog for me in a loose order of priority. I will tell you if I come across one of those things that I think is like significantly hard. Right. And then you may want to reassess priority given that information, but not having, I I err on the side of having uh, as little defined process as necessary. Like in this meeting we had today, it came up that like one of the problems that was identified was like, oh, we're using Trello as the backlog, which is great for a company that is the size that the company I'm working with now is for the fact that they're still on Trello. I love it uh, because it's so lightweight and do whatever you want. But one of the things that doesn't really do well is tracking like dependencies between things, right? And saying like, well, we Mm -hmm. can't work on this until this other thing is done. And you can use columns for that. And we kind of try and do, do that but and so i was like you know yes jira would do a better job of that but in much the same way we were talking about earlier is like yes that would solve this one particular problem at a great cost of like this tool is now much like there's much more overhead to the to using jira than there is to using yeah. Trello, right i think you can get 80 percent of the way there just by prioritizing the cards yep have the thing it depends on be a higher priority Right. But when you have a large enough team, right, like one of the things I'm working on right now got split out like it's an epic. It was like they started with an epic card, which is just one card. And then the product manager was like, "Okay, I'm dividing this up into six cards. And they got put in the backlog. And like the most important one was like the one where we would do a lot of the foundational work. But then there's like these five or six other cards just hanging out there that are in the right priority order, except that they can't be worked on until I finish my first part. Right. Sure. That kind of thing. Fair pair yeah or uh i was like you know you could technically just call those blocked like they're we have a column for blocked things and it's blocked until it's not blocked on any external thing it's just blocked until this is completed versus yeah. being blocked on product manager feedback or blocked on like implementation impossibilities <laughs> well and these processes all work a lot better too when you are not dealing with 3d rendering <laughs> why is that because then you end up with a card that's like, make the dudes appear on the screen. <laughs> Which is, yeah. you know, like a four-week-long card. Uh, bake a pie from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and well, and we talked about that a little bit, because you do have, even in web development, you have those cards where it's like, do this seemingly simple-sounding thing. Like the first card in a Rails app, right? And it's like, oh, well, that also means I have to get a Rails app configured the way I want it to be configured and the way, like... And like Thoughtbot has suspenders and people who have created a lot of Rails apps have probably have like their set of things they like to do to a Rails app. But like it's harder than like implementing the next feature is even if the next feature is simpler, that kind of thing. Yeah. I always like auth as the first feature for a Rails app. Except that there's probably nothing calling 
for there to be authentication at this point, right? Like no, but it but auth calls for all of the basic scaffolding that you would want, right? And is a relatively simple feature. Yeah, generally. Yeah, you just gem install clearance, and then you're exactly. <laughs> Actually, yes. The client project I'm on right now is using auth zero for auth. Okay. This is my second tour on this client project. Like they were a client last year, went away for a while, and they've kind of asked for some more help. And uh, one of the last things I did was like evaluate Auth zero for them, and I was like, I don't, I don't, don't do this. Like, just I don't have any specific <laughs> objections except like, you want to customize it in ways that are going to be hard, and like it seems like something you should like your database of users seems like something you should own, things like that. I, I actually strongly disagree with that. Well, easiest way to avoid uh, vulnerability of your users' passwords is not make your users enter, enter well, a password. I didn't say that they have to actually. What I meant more is you don't necessarily have to have the password. Like that's fine if you want to say like you sign in with Google or you sign in with whatever. Right. Um, then that's fine. But this is not that. But this is not that. This is like a user's microservice that you don't control. This is they 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 have your password. Right. And but they also have like you know one of the couple of nice things in favor of it were like hey do you want to auth with Google check this box one of the major arguments they made is like we have a lot of things in our sales pipeline selling to organizations that are likely to want something like SAML authentication mm. and that's a checkbox right but all of these things are buildable and knowable and yeah. I mean, that's just gem install Omnioth hyphen Google or whatever it is. Right. And then the SAML thing is probably something out there. If not, we have people on our team who have built SAML integrations before. Like, it's it's possible to do, and it takes more time than checking a box. But it's been interesting because... Gem install Omnioth hyphen SAML is a thing. Okay, there you go. Um, now, coming back to the project, like, they've done a lot of really good things with, like, review apps, and review apps sync data from staging, and they sync some user data from Auth0. And... Uh, the syncing from Auth0 fails every single time. So, like, and it, it has become, like, a significant pain point to, like, we can't merge any work until, like, acceptance has been done on these review apps and we can't deploy review apps because Auth0's reliability is so bad. And it's not, like, their authenticate the username and password reliability. It's, like, their API availability mm -hmm. is has been a big problem. So I felt somewhat vindicated in my, like, hey, probably don't use Auth0. I'm not entirely sure why yet, except that it just seems like you want more out of it than it's going to give you. Because yeah. at this point, I'm, I'm almost positive it has cost them more time than it has saved them to date and probably will continue to do so. But anyway, you said you had a Rails thing. Yeah, a little thing. So we're in the process of moving the attributes API to active model. Yep. But one of the things I want to do as, as a part of that is remove the, the code duplication between active record dirty and active model dirty. Um, basically, what that requires is deprecating the use of active model dirty without using the attributes API. So basically, if you are using an adder accessor and you're using active model dirty, like those two things can no longer be used together. Mm -hmm. Which for most people probably isn't going to be a big deal. You change adder reader or adder accessor to attribute, and that's all you have to do. Oh, and may, and if you are accessing the instance variables directly, you know, grep for at and replace it with self dot. Mm -hmm. That's all well and good. But th there were some people in uh, Campfire who had some concerns, one of which being that active models starting to see a good bit of uh, feature bloat, and that we are basically... Well, there was some conflated concerns, too. There was Because one of the other things I eventually want to do is replace the active model API with a much smaller API that is basically you return an object that implements some subset of the same API that attribute set implements, mm -hmm. which will be a much smaller API than the active model API today, much easier to implement, and much better suited for all of our consumers. But that's all separate because that does not really include dirty. 
But dirty is interesting because it feels somewhat disjoint from the rest of active model in that active model for the most part is an API. There's very little behavior there. Other, you know, the things that provide behavior are like define attribute methods, which is how we define the active model API, uh, and like validations, which is another one that feels disjoint, but uh, like is less bad because validations doesn't really care about anything else about your object. Mm-hmm. Whereas dirty does. Dirty needs to care about how, how it's accessing uh, your data. And specifically whether there was uh, typecasting involved is a thing that dirty needs to care about as well. And unlike active model validations, it's not just, you know, include active model dirty and then bam, you have change detection. Like if you're if you're trying to implement this yourself, you still need to override a ton of other methods and basically figure out when to call will change bang, when to call changes applied. I mean, even the minimal example on a documentation has you overriding like six different methods and that's just to track changes on one attribute. Whereas validations, right? Yeah, you include it and bam, things things can be validated. Mm-hmm. Same with callbacks, actually, although Active Model doesn't have callbacks. Mm, thought it did. Is there an Active Model callbacks? Oh, there is. A, there is. A, oh, validation callbacks. Huh. Oh, right. You get your before validation. Yeah. I guess Active Model callbacks is what describes the before right. underscore and after underscore convention. Right. And you can define your own. You can say, like, define model callbacks and you give it a name and then you get your before and your after. Yeah, I don't see anything in here that really needs to be an active model. This could all just just as easily be an active support callbacks. Mm-hmm. Nothing here has anything to do with models or being a model. It's just a DSL for defining callbacks. <laughs> it's a DSL for what used to be alias method chain. <laughs> yeah, right. Like a bef- anyway. Um, um, basically, the the their concern was that we were only the only reason we were putting this in active model was because we wanted to separate it from active record. And active model was the only other really bucket that really exists so that we could put this in. Which is starting to raise the question of whether we should separate out the things that have been living on Active Model that are behavior related from the concept of the Active Model API, and perhaps move the Attributes API instead of moving it off of Active Record onto Active Model, instead move that off of Active Record onto Abstract Record, Ooh. or some other name, but something that is all of the modely bits of Active Record, but not specifically tied to a persistence layer. Which is to a certain extent what active model is supposed to be as well, but but there is just this intentional separate. We want to sort of separate from how much are you willing to give control over? Do you want to let this thing handle the storage of your attributes for you? If so, then then you would use this, and if not, then you would drop down to active model. And so then dirty would be a thing that will move off of active model onto this new gem. Mm-hmm. So sort of the intermediate layer of like, I don't know if other ORMs would use it, but. Certainly, it is a thing that you that Rails users would use if they wanted to have things that aren't Active Record models, but you want some of the nice things from Active Record, like type coercion. Mm-hmm. So that's just a thing that we've been an idea that we've been toying with, and really the only other user of the Active Model API is Mongoid. So I need to go see what Mongoid is doing if they're using Dirty at all, or if what we do to Dirty affects Mongoid in the slightest. Well, except for all the other apps that are using it, right? Like, <laughs> sure. And I think most people are using Active Model only because like it's the simplest way to get a thing that behaves with Form Four, right? And we've talked before that like it'd be much nicer to have a simpler abstraction for that. Yeah, uh, that would be awesome. Well, and, and it'd also be great if like the form builder didn't need to have a ton of conditionals of if it implements this method that is part of the Active Model API, but not everybody's going to implement because it includes things like dirty. Mm-hmm. Do this. Right. Scala play form objects. Those look nice. Yes. Those are <laughs> Let, things. Let's get that those. Exist. I'm this project I'm on, I think I've talked about it before, but it has um it uses reform 
for form objects, which is part of mm-hmm. Trailblazer. It's been kind of frustrating. The documentation's a little light. It's really well documented for some use cases. Um, but like the I other thought you had to buy the book for the real documentation. I did buy the book. Ultimately, I was like, all right, forget it. Okay. I'm, I'm going to buy the book. And so uh, it's frustrating because there'll be an issue and it'll be like, oh, I talk about this in the book. Or somebody will be like, this was covered in the book. I'm like, I don't, I'm just looking at the docs and GitHub. And so I was like, all right, fine, I'll go buy the book. And it turns out it's actually like a pay what you want kind of, kind of situation. So I could have paid oh. zero. But I tried to pay the suggested amount, which was like $9 or $9.99 or something like that. But uh, the form didn't accept American Express, and that's my corporate card. And paying with something else requires that I jump through some hoops to get the expense approved and all that stuff. So I was like, well, I guess I'm paying zero. <laughs> and so, <laughs> But then I looked through the book. And like, I don't, I'm not interested in all of Trailblazer. I'm just interested in the reform bits and the parts. Yeah. And ultimately, I have to care about um, this thing called Twins, which is a thing that it uses i'm not entirely sure but basically like the scenario i wanted to do was like there's lots of documentation on how to do nested forms where like you have a a person that has many addresses or something like that right and you want to add a new address for them or edit an existing address and there's documentation on how to do that using these things called populators that get called when you try to validate input and like they figure out based on the input we're getting from the form you want to manipulate the collection in this way. You want to insert a new record, modify a record, or destroy a record from the collection. But the use case I had, which was was slightly different and seems like it's common, right? We have a has one. Like we have a, uh, in this case, we had a sponsor that has a logo and, uh, or has, I think it's has one image or something. An image is polymorphic and that's not really important. Uh, but that's why it's a has one and not a belongs to. So, mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, okay. Well, it turns out none of the stuff it tells you to do with populators applies to things that aren't collections. So like, I ended up seeing a bug in the way it was implemented, which was like the populator, uh, which is this thing that runs when you try to do the validation. So you, you say like, you know, form object dot validate and you pass it the parameters. And then what you're supposed to do is say, if that validation passes, then call save, right? But what they were doing in the populator was finding the associate, saying like, oh, is the destroy flag set in the parameters? If it is, then find the associated logo or image and destroy it. Mm -hmm. And so if any other change in that collection of parameters was invalid, then none of the other changes would get persisted because we weren't calling save because we were saying validate failed. But because the populator manually called destroy, the associated object was being deleted. Like looking at that, it's like I could see why you wrote the code here because it worked, and it's not clear what populator means or when. Like so, I looked through the documentation. I was like, it's clear I'm supposed to use a populator for these types of things, and I'll, there's no built-in way to say like this single associated object that the user has indicated they want you to destroy. I want you to mark it for destruction, but not actually destroy it until somebody calls save. Don't we have that built into Rails? There's auto save association. No, but isn't there a mark? Oh, yeah, it's on. It's well. I mean, autosave association is a thing that right marked for deletion or marked for destroy or whatever yeah, it's called. You can call you can call right. dot mark for destruction on a record. Right, but that's um, only that only has any impact if the association is declared with autosave. Right, which happens implicitly if you do things like accepts nested attributes for. Right, but this isn't using accepts nested attributes for. No, no, I know right? it's not. So, in fact, a lot of the ways that you can build the the like has many situations, like the way you build the has many situation relies on the marked for deletion thing. It mm-hmm. just has it just was never implemented for the has one belongs to type of implementation. So what I ended up having to do was override save. So now like you call save and I started active record transaction and then I call super and then I say like, oh, also sponsor dot image 
dot destroy if you know the parameters also also indicated that we should destroy this image so you re-implemented autosave association uh yes basically and i re-implemented i basically re-implemented a form object right it was like i at this point i wish i just wrote the whole like it's such a hard line we've talked about it on the show so often like to decide like do i want to write a form object because there's like a whole thing like it seems so easy and in some contexts it really is but then you get to like associated objects that themselves might have errors that are populated from like the base classes and you have to figure out how to bubble those up to the attributes on the actual active model object and like yeah but for this for the most common cases if you're just dealing with a has one and you just want to have a form also have the stuff from the has one like acceptance and attributes for just works yeah i always feel like defeated when i just like okay accepts nested attributes for because i just know about all the things that come with that and it's like uh, i don't want that i just like i want an object and i want to take that object and then make it do for me things on multiple sure. objects in the end and why is this so hard it's 2017 we're at rails 5.1 almost six that's almost six <laughs> i don't know why that's important <laughs> but i just want this to be easier in a way that doesn't require me buying into this entire ecosystem and reading an entire book to try and grok and then still have to override save yeah uh, unfortunately it's a hard problem i guess so i guess i mean i think it's a harder problem because of backward compatibility at this point like if you could just throw if you had to start fresh wouldn't it be a little bit easier of a problem no really i don't think so no i, I like i think coming up with an api that represents all of the different use cases that we want these to represent that is not verbose in the common cases is really hard to do but like we've talked on the show before, like if you were writing a framework today and you had a thing analogous to models, would you put validations on the model? Or would you say no, validations go either in the database as like a, this is exceptional if this occurs, or they go on your form object. It's a specific object meant to be represented in a form and it can change based on context because you can you can initialize a different form object. But right, different but validation. as we've talked about before, even that one's hard because uniqueness. <laughs> Yeah, but you put a uniqueness validation and do your best thing, right? And maybe the form object reflects has the ability to reflect on database errors to turn those into like non-exceptional and actually turn them into real errors. Right, but then that means that your your validations are now going to have to care about your model and how persistence occurs and know that database errors are a thing that exists. It's no longer a thing that can be separate. Right. I feel like as an example, I feel like Ecto's change sets are pretty good. Mm -hmm. as like a good abstraction for what I'm what I'm actually after here and I can have different change sets in different contexts and they're not tied to the schema of the thing right that's one of the major features I really like when I'm working with Elixir and Phoenix no I agree and that's the direction diesel moves although diesel doesn't have any concept of like manipulating associations but I think definitely the change set model is the the, the direction to go yeah let's just get there with rails or you know not let's just do something else let's just all write rust <laughs> <laughs> we should have paul on the show so paul is a co-worker of mine at thoughtbot and he just wrote a blog post about this framework he's been working on for crystal called lucky and he had a workshop here where he we built a little toy app using crystal and it was really impressive like and to the point where like really familiar if you're familiar with rails and answers some of the like typical problems that i had with rails and i'm sure that like <laughs> he's about to find out what it's like when other people start using it right and other people start being like oh well what about this and what about that and, but he's done a yeah. really good job so far it's kind of an ambitious undertaking and he's written an ORM and he's written a router and he's written you know all this stuff and it's pretty cool and what I, I've really liked what I've seen of Crystal like if you like writing Ruby Crystal's very familiar 
-hmm. the compiler errors are good in some cases and really not very good in others like a lot of the html helpers that he wrote for this framework end up being macros because a div isn't very much different than a p tag for instance right Mm -hmm. implementation wise and uh, when you get type errors from macros the call stack doesn't really make any sense to a person that's using it so it'd be cool if they could fix that but Anyway, he knows a lot more about it. I've only played with it for a span of like three hours. Uh, and I told him to reach out to you about, because he was dealing with like associations. I was like, talk to Sean about that. Because he's writing an ORM as well and has maintains Rails and Active Record and also written something that's different for particular reasons. And you should understand the motivations there. So anyway, I'll make sure he does that. Okay. <laughs> we can have him on the show and just he'll do it then. <laughs> that works. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Do you think we should wrap up? Yeah, I think we should wrap up, probably. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 132. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at Bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.